You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Good morning. My name is Lee White, and I have the privilege of serving here at Ascend as the Director of Family Ministries. And it's my joy and my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning as Pastor Jeff is away on vacation with his family. And each time I get the opportunity to to open God's Word, I just do view it as a privilege to share in some way what God has taught me to you. And as we do that this morning, I invite us to, to think about this concept of perspective. Perspective is one of those cool things to me, how two people from different angles can view one event. And when we combine their understanding of what's taken place, we get a greater picture of the truth that's there. And one of the reasons I love perspective is I've seen so many times in my life how another individual is able to step in and give me greater understanding and wisdom as they show me something from a different perspective. Maybe, maybe you've benefited from that as well. One of the places that I see that perspective is really helpful is you go to the gym, right? And you're doing your best. You're there. You're trying to figure out what's going on. And somebody walks up and is like, actually, if you turn around, this is how you're supposed to use the machine, right? Uh, or they, they say, you know, hey, if, if, you, if you want a better workout, you need to, to do the things in this pattern so you give recovery for your muscles. Or, or maybe it's uh, the grill master. You know, if, if you guys see on the stage here, uh, that's the ch- championship belt for the Holy Smokes. It's a big deal, right? Um, so it's there for you to, to ponder as, as you're sitting there. But maybe you get around a grill master who tells you, hey, this is the way to season the meat. This is the, the time that you would put it on and, and the different things that you add to it. Or for me, one of the most revolutionary things that somebody taught me in grilling is how to take square pieces of cheese and put them on circular patties so that it doesn't fall all over your grill. And the trick there is you fold in the corners. You build it up on the top and it slowly melts to the to shape of your cheeseburger. Trust me, it is so much easier than doing it the other way and just constantly scraping the cheese off your grill. Or as a parent, right, there's so many things that you have no idea what to do as a parent that you walk through and somebody says, hey, yeah, you know why you're trying to put sunscreen on your kid's face who wants to already be in the pool? Just take one of those little makeup sponges and just dip that in there and just paint away and you're done. So much easier. Like, where was that at the hospital? when we were walking out with this child that we're trying to keep alive, right? They have a greater perspective. They have wisdom. They're able to impart it. They're able to help us to see how we can do more than just survive and actually thrive in the things that we're trying to do. You know, another place for me that helped me to understand how perspective is important is just how I've grown up as an individual and looking back at even movies that I watched and what my perspective was as a kid versus what it is today as an adult. And for me, one of those movies is a Disney classic, a Goofy movie, right? Anybody seen a Goofy movie? It's, it's vastly underrated in uh, the Disney kingdom, right? But uh, you got a Goofy movie, right? You've got Max. He's this cool kid who he gets his pal and he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go. We're going to throw this impromptu concert so everybody knows who we are. 
And of course, he's doing that for the attention of Roxanne. And uh, as he sets up this impromptu school assembly that the school doesn't know is happening, he gets in trouble for that, right? And uh, as he and his pal are sitting there with Polly Shore and different guy making the Leaning Tower of Cheese, uh, he realizes he's in trouble, right? And as he gets home, his dad tries to figure out, what do I do with this? What do I do with this situation? And his dad decides he needs to take a road trip for his entire summer. And this is the exact opposite thing of what Max was looking for. Max was looking for a summer with Roxanne that he had tried to set up, right? And so he goes and has to make up a story about why his plans are not going to happen. So he tells one thing as his dad takes him off to spend some real quality time together. And as they go across the country, his dad ends up at some really bad, miserable places for Max. But Max is able to redeem the situation when he sneaks into the Powerline concert and tells Goofy, his dad, to do the perfect cast as the perfect dance, right? And so as a kid, that's what you see in the movie, right? You see that Max can save the situation. Max is the cool kid. It's all about Max. As I grow up and view it as a parent, what I see is my perspective has changed. The guy who was the goofy, hapless dad in this situation, I see as a guy who's really just trying to spend time with his son. He understands that, that something has taken place and his son needs more attention. And you look at Goofy. Goofy is a single dad doing his best to raise Max in this situation, looking to his needs to try to provide what's best for him. Think about that. I also think about our moms and dads who just got their kids back for the summer. And I pray for you because it's so different than what they've been used to and the schedules and the, the routine. And I know my daughter thrives in that situation. And now she's back with us. And uh, we have to recreate those things. And, and it's hard, but Goofy's just trying to do what he can to help his kid to be the person he should be. Sometimes in life, we gain perspective just as we grow. And so as we look at that this morning, I want to share how my perspective of the book of Psalms has grown. You know, when I first looked at the book of Psalms, I really taught it and thought of it as this like hymn book, right? It's, it's songs. So I would pick my favorites and I would go to those. Psalm 23, I know what that says. It provides comfort for me. Psalm 100, it's a call to thanksgiving. I pick and choose those places I want to go, and those are the only parts of the Psalms that I would interact with. But what I've come to see and come to understand is that the compiler of the Psalms and its place in the Scriptures has a much greater purpose for us. And while viewing it as a hymn book where we go to for our favorites is not going to keep God from speaking to you, nor is it going to keep God from teaching you or growing you in your understanding of who he is and what he calls you to be, it is going to keep us from reaping the bountiful harvest that's present for those who do the harder things of investing to understand the totality of what's present and so what I hope for us to see this morning together is the big idea for the day, that Psalm 1 displays the intentional structure of the Psalms to guide us in wisdom 
as we walk through the paths of our lives. But before we jump into Psalm 1 today, I do think that because we're talking about that intentional structure, we need to develop a little bit of that before we begin reading our verses this morning. And so last week, Pastor Jeff did a great job of setting up the whole summer series for the summer in the Psalms of giving us a really high, broad level understanding of what's taking place. But Psalm 1's placement at the beginning of the book of Psalms is there to help us understand how we read the entire book. Because what it plays out for us is the totality of the story of the gospel of God, preparing us for the other 149 psalms that will walk us through the continuing amplification of that teaching. We need to understand the different parts of this book so that we understand what God is trying to communicate to us. And as individuals who who read the scriptures now, we often understand that what we have here is far different than what the individual original here had. In a vastly illiterate society, they would be reciting these or singing them, oftentimes with instruments, and they brought it into their festivals, their celebrations, and their liturgical calendar. They would use these psalms to tell God's story to God's people, often as they were approaching the physical presence of the Lord as they came to the temple. So they're written and organized in such a way to draw the individual to the presence of God. And I think it's important for us to understand even the type of literature that the book of Psalms is. The Old Testament is separated into four real groups of writings. When we look at it, it has the Torah, which is the first five books, the books of Moses. Then we have the historical books. Then we have what's commonly called the writings. And then we have the prophets. The book of Psalms falls into the writings, and when we look at the purpose of the writings, the writings are present to provide wisdom. But when we think about songs in our day, we don't naturally think of Psalms providing wisdom. We don't think of songs being there to give us instruction. At least I'm not going to Taylor Swift for relational advice. I'm not looking to the Beatles to tell me how to understand politics. I don't look to artists and songs to give me instruction about how I should be living my life. But understanding that the book of Psalms is a book of wisdom and understanding this fuller story that it's trying to communicate helps us to gain the perspective that we need to come to Psalm 1 today as well as to read through and understand and abide in the rest of the Psalms. So I invite you to look at this thought that we're going to put up on the screen behind me. It says, the Psalms are an invitation to a literary temple where you can meet with God and hear the entire biblical story retold in poetic form. That's the purpose for the Psalms, to draw us to the temple, the presence of God, where he displays his character and his attributes to us so that we grow in our understanding of how he is using his story to draw us to the paths of redemption he has for us. So let's unpack this real quick big picture of the entire 
purpose of Psalm 1 through 150. Psalm 1 begins here with laying out these two pathways. We see a pathway of righteousness and a pathway of unrighteousness. Two choices that are given. We understand that those choices were given to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they chose not to follow the instruction or the teaching or the Torah of God, but instead to listen to the lies of Satan, the deceiver. At that point, the presence of God is removed from his people. When the presence of God is removed from his people, that has to be restored at some way. But it will never, this side of eternity, be restored in the full presence of what Adam and Eve had when they walked in the garden with the Lord. And as we walk through that, it tells us that, hey, there's a big need for man. That need is developed in chapter 2, Psalm 2, where we see the central figure of the Messiah introduced to us. The one who is going to save the people. Psalm 3 and 4 display the desire and the call and the necessity of man to call upon the Lord for salvation. They call and show the neediness of man and the fact that he needs redemption that comes only through God. The rest of the book, the first book of the Psalms, the first section of the five that are there, develops character, faithfulness, and other attributes of God, much in the same way that God displays that to his people through the nation of Israel. But then book two brings back that central character of the Messiah and amplifies our understanding of that before book three focuses us upon the messianic kingdom. And if you're reading through this as the first Jewish audience would be, you would think that that would be the pinnacle of what they were trying to reach. But we're only halfway through the book of Psalms. And sadly, what we see as we walk through that is that if we walk through the story of God, they got to the point where the temple was brought back. They got to the point where God had given the blessing of the Davidic covenant, and he had told them that they would have a ruler who sat on the throne forever. But if we know what happened with the nation of Israel, they fell short of what God had called them to do, and they turned their back on him, leading to a disastrous period for the nation, which culminated in the exile of God's people from their promised land and his further removal from their presence as he departs the the temple never to return again to it. And so book four then deals with the messy life that they live in. The fact that they're present and desiring something that is not for them to attain. That book, book four of the Psalms, goes back and forth between calls for praise and cries for help as they work through the brokenness of their world. But finally, the crescendo ends in book five, where the people of God are praising God as if we would be praising God present with him in heaven. So this book is functioning to give us access to God by telling his story. It tells us his story so that we can see where we are in that. For the Hebrew audience, they use this as their liturgical calendar. They would use huge portions of the book all at once for remembrance at feasts as they move towards worship times. They, rem- they remembered God's call to know that story. But as they were pilgrimaging towards the temple and as they were looking at these psalms in their life, they were not always spiritually drawn to the same places that they were physically walking. 
You know, I watched a movie uh, as a kid that, that I always remember a vivid scene in, and it's, it's the movie Elizabethtown. Um, and it's about uh, a guy who he's failing in business. He finds out his dad's died, so he goes back to Kentucky for the funeral. Then the guy's Orlando Bloom, and he gets on a flight, and he's like the only person there, and Kirsten Dunst is the stewardess who meets him on that, and they go through all these crazy things. But the part of the movie that always sticks out to me is, this is maybe hard for some of you guys to understand, but I grew up in like the MapQuest era of directions for things, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? There you go, yeah. So, uh, don't make any adjustments to your trip after you've left the computer or you are lost. Um, so you print out before you go on the road trip, you know, maybe it's a four or five page thing. It's got every step you take to get you from point A to point B. And if you know the place you want to eat, you drop that in there. You know the place you're sleeping halfway, you drop that in there, right? So they're doing this road trip and it's a 72 hour trip from Elizabethtown, Kentucky for him to get back home to Los Angeles. But she sets up on these burn CDs, right? You know, so you got to like, make sure you got them in order. You got that whole book there going through that. And then this, this crazy like binder full of drawings and step-by-step instructions for how he is supposed to get to the place that he is supposed to be going and that he desires to go. And the crazy part of it is, is she builds in choices for him. So like understanding like what he's going to have to choose between on that path. Which place is he going to go so that he will truly end up where he wants to be, not necessarily where he's being told to go. And so I view our understanding of what the book of Psalms is, much like that journey that she sets up for him. It's laid out before us. It's giving us the opportunity to choose but it's the soundtrack, it's the guide, it's the pathway forward for the worshiper of God who desires to be in his presence. And so I invite you to join this journey as we walk through Psalm 1 today, as we see three scenes that correspond to three commands from these six verses. Book 1, it says here, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So as we take the perspective of viewing these scenes this morning, the first scene that we come to is a, a problem. And this problem is a corresponding command with it to be aware. You see, two pathways are laid out. And the problem is a choice must be made. To move forward in a journey where there is two pathways, you must place yourself on one of those pathways or you make no progress. And truly, if you're not making progress on a journey, that means you are not moving towards the end goal and therefore are moving away from what you should be doing. But we're introduced here to this worshiper, this man who is called blessed, but we're not told much about him. In fact, we're told about the opposite of him first before we're told about him. 
the first aspect of what we're given here are three practices or three activities that this individual does not participate in. First, they are the opposite of the person who walks according to the counsel of the wicked. You see, they've chosen to align themselves with the principles of the way of the wicked and their motion, their life, their walk moves forward in that life instead of the foundation that they had before. They chose to think like the wicked and their lives begin to reflect it by the motion and the activity in it. Second, they're the opposite of the individual who stands in the way of sinners. They begin to reflect the culture. The people are, that are around them begin to influence their decisions. And they move closer in their association with the wicked. And third and finally, the downward spiral of the individual is seen as they demonstrate that they're now firmly entrenched within the community and the society of the wickedness as they have staked their claim besides the scoffers, the mockers, and the blasphemers. Their identity is now tied to the pursuit that they began so much so that they are intrinsically ingrained in the way of the wicked. Now for the hearer who is informed by Scripture, this threefold summary is a story that we see developed within the pages of Scriptures. We see that God's people began in the garden with Adam and Eve, who were given a choice to choose which way they would choose. Would they walk the way of the Lord, or would they choose the way of wickedness? Unfortunately, they chose to no longer walk on the way of the righteous as Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan the deceiver. And as they move forward in the story, we see that their association with wickedness continues to grow rather than leads them back to the path of righteousness. You might think that as you walk through that, that you might recall certain situations where the nation of Israel began to rebel against the authority and the leadership of God. The Exodus generation is a perfect example of this, as we see individuals like Korah, Aaron, and Miriam, who set themselves up against the one that God has put in charge. They say, you do not have our best interests. We want to go back to where we were enslaved. Who made you the leader of this people? You might say the downward spiral of the nation of Israel ends in the book of Judges where the people of Israel choose to do what's right in their own eyes because there's no king present. And while that is the sad refrain of the book of Judges, I don't truly believe that that's the end of the downward spiral. You see, I see the end of the downward spiral as when the kings, the priests, and the prophets chose instead of seeking the counsel of the Lord to seek counsel from the nations, the prophets, and the priests of the foreign gods of the land. We see that take place at the end of the monarchy as the nation of Israel chooses to sit and seek counsel for how they should lead their people from the people who blasphemed their God. It's a complete opposite portrayal of what God had called the prophets, the priests, and the kings to do. 
They were to be set apart and other from who they were from the people in the land. But they said, no, we want to sit and be exactly like them. For those who read Psalm 1 and look through the way in which God's story develops the way of the wicked, it's easy to see how that is a person who is not blessed. A person who has entrenched themselves in the way of the wicked has set themselves up against the blessing of God. Now, if this downward spiral was truly the destiny of all people, it would not be present in a warning. No one warns something about something that's inevitable, that's going to happen. But because we have the ability to choose and to willfully choose, we have the ability to choose poorly. And as we have the ability to choose poorly, we have the ability to sin and sin against others and place ourselves on the way of righteousness. We see that when we choose to sin, We've moved ourselves off of the way of righteousness and must be drawn back to it by something. But in order for us to understand what that is, we see the scene expand as a contrast is brought in with verse 2. Verse 2, we truly see who this person is as we get a glimpse of their character. They're the individual who delights in the law or the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. And they're the one who meditates upon that law day and night. As we think about that word delights here, I call this our Chick-fil-A moment, right? It's the pleasure or the delight of this individual doing that. We all know you go to Chick-fil-A, you're at fast food, but the service that you receive there is markedly different by the customer interaction with the employees because of the way in which they've developed a culture there that values the pleasure or the delight of the consumer. And so you walk in and, and, and when they respond to you, they're supposed to respond, when you say thank you, it's my pleasure. It was their pleasure to serve you. They delighted in that activity. It's the same thought here that's given to this individual who is looking to the law of the Lord. They delight in it. It's their pleasure. It is not a duty. It is not something that they see as a a chore. It is their true pleasure or their delight. It's their passion to look to the instruction of the Lord. And the way in which they do that, and the way in which the psalmist refers to that here, is also significant. If you remember, as we walked through Psalm 119 previously, I I walked through the different ways in which the teachings of God can be focused on. This one chooses to talk about the Torah or the instruction of the Lord. And I believe that's significant because it's within those first five books of the Bible that we see a summary of the totality of what God is trying to do in his story. We see the development of the creation. We see the fall of man. We see the need for redemption. And we see the desired promise that moves towards the consummation of the age. The totality of the gospel is set up in those first five books. And so by looking to that, by ascending our thoughts to that level, to focus on that, to delight on that, prepares us for encountering Jesus and the truth of the cross and the way in which the gospel can transform us and do for us what nothing else can. So the individual that delights in reflecting on that prepares themselves to encounter Jesus when he is brought into their life and to continually daily encounter him 
as they meditate on his law day and night. When we think about that thought, meditating on his law, we're looking into the grammar and the way in which they've chosen and constructed this thought. And one of the things that I believe is we often can get to something like that and uh, have our own understanding of what it's trying to uh, focus on. And as a person who deals a lot with students, I ask a lot of questions. And a lot of times I ask students to repeat back what I've said to them so that I know they understand what I've said. What I've learned by that is they don't always know what I've tried to say. Um, Maybe you guys as parents have experienced this or teachers as well, or maybe even in the workplace, you've given a task to an individual and said, hey, can you go do this? And you later realize they had no idea what you were talking about. Um, And I don't think we would say that with day and night, that we have no idea what they're talking about. But as sometimes I talk to somebody about day and night, they're like, great, I'll do it as soon as I wake up, and then I'll do it right before I go to bed. Then I've checked off the day box, I've checked off the night box. Done what you asked me to do, right? It's true, at at the letter of saying that, yeah, you've done what's been asked, but you've missed the point. Day and night are present to talk about the totality of our life. The poetic structure of that gives us a scene that there's not a part of our life that we're not supposed to be meditating on God. It encompasses for us a totality of what he calls for us rather than presents us a legalistic, liturgical understanding of checking off boxes with our relationship to the Lord. And so as we walk through that, we see that to get a more full image of what it looks like to delight in the law of the Lord, we still need more. And the second scene expands on that by giving us a picture. And this picture is accompanied with a command to be abiding. And that picture is this picture of the tree that is flourishing in its growth. You know, one of the really cool things that I appreciate about flying is the perspective you get from 10,000 or 20,000, 40,000 feet, however high you get up there, right? You look back down at the earth and how small things are, and it's just great activity that you get to do to, to do that. And as you look back down at the earth, one of the things that is really fun for me to do, or maybe you enjoy doing this too, is is watching the way at which water cuts through our country, right? The streams, the creeks, the the rivers that are there. And as you see that, you often see the lush green that is present right next to it. It's because the water is needed for providing for those things to grow. Even if you're taking 35 up towards the airport, as you cross the river, the trees there are just massive because they're next to this source of water that is always present. Now, when I flew back and forth from California the nine years that I lived out there, You fly over a part of our country that is not known for its water. In fact, is somebody who lived in Southern California, they get their water from Northern California. If you drive from Southern California to Northern California, there's actually billboards saying don't share our water with Southern California. They want to keep it in Northern California because even when it rains a couple inches, it floods in Southern California because the ground is so hard and not ready for the water that comes. But even flying over that part of the country, you see the lush green trees that are accompanied by the waters that are true sources of water that are always present. And that's the image that we're given here about the way in which 
our relationship to the Lord needs to be tied to his pathway of providing for us. And we see that in his word. But this image here that we see in two verses, it's actually not even unique to the book of Psalms in our scriptures. In fact, we find a a more expanded version of that in Jeremiah 17. And if you have a child who's in the Ascend Kids ministry, their memory verse from this month is Jeremiah 17, 7. And my daughter let me know multiple times this week that I was saying it incorrectly as I have the ESV version and she has the Holman Christian Study Bible version. And so I'll accept either if you want to share that with me. But Jeremiah 17, let's walk through the fuller picture that is given there. Because in that part, we see with Jeremiah, this part of the story of God, he is drawing on a truth that God has given to them. Jeremiah 17 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, Jeremiah's day was not an easy day for ministry. In fact, he's called the weeping prophet because he does his ministry and no one responds. Though he gives this warning, the sin of the nation of Judah is so significant and their hearts are so hardened and their ways are so stiff that they do not turn from their evil but continue to live in wickedness. And so Jeremiah gave that picture to them. The book of Psalms gives us that picture today. And it shows us that if we are not abiding and growing from the streams of living water that come to us through God, through Jesus, through God's word, then we will not withstand what comes. Because whether we're the chaff, the important part of the grain that actually can just blow away in a small wind, or whether we're the scorched tumbleweed that's rolling through the desert, we lack the life-sustaining ability to pursue the hard times that are coming. For the people of Israel, they knew this. They'd been through it. They knew what it looked like to wander aimlessly searching for the things that they needed because they had lived that. They knew what it meant to be scattered to the ends of the earth because they had been exiled. They'd lost their foundation. They'd lost their identity. And their lives had been far removed from where they were supposed to be. But we have a much different perspective than they do. Because we have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a fullness of the understanding of how he is what draws us back to the relationship that we once had with God. And how his spirit comes upon us when we believe and when we confess and when we look to his sacrifice for us. The gospels display that to us. And Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, picking up this same image for us about the importance and the perspective that we have this side of the cross for those in a similar situation. Ephesians three seventeen, he writes, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You see, if we are those who have a delighting and abiding relationship in the Lord, we understand that we are anchoring ourselves, we are placing our foundation in the heart of the gospel, the love that he has displayed to us. That when we do that, our lives are a response to the gospel and the goodness of the gospel. That all that we do is take what we've been given and reflect that to others as we seek to love God and to love those he's placed in our lives. You see, that's what it looks like to have this abiding, delighting relationship in the Lord. And it prepares us for whatever will come. If our perspective is the gospel, we are ready for whatever season God places us in. Whether that's a season of blessing or a season of hardship. Whether that's a season of drought or a season of plenty. Our perspective is rooted in the gospel and we are therefore prepared to live in the way that God has called us to live. I had the chance the other day to, to go back to uh, one of my childhood homes. And I, I was a military kid. I was used to moving about eight, every 18 months. Uh, and when I was in fourth grade, my dad got out of the military and we moved to Lee Summit. And so it was kind of a foreign thought, but it was kind of told to us like, hey, this is going to be the house that we're now going to live in. Like I assumed that meant forever, right? We're going to live in that house forever. And, and I wasn't used to that because usually we'd moved every 18 months. And this was like only the second like real house that we'd lived in. We'd always lived in like apartments or, or townhouses or duplexes or condominiums, things like that, whatever it was that the military was providing for us. But they actually built this house in Lee Summit and it was in a cul-de-sac and it was on like an acre of land. And so when they built it, they put a couple trees in there, but then uh, I, I went to school and that was during the big like Arbor Day push. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but they'd like give us trees as we're walking out to take home. Uh, and so I ended up with several of these trees, and it's a stick with a paper towel wrapped around the bottom of it, and that's a tree, okay? And so I get home with these trees, and my dad or my mom, I forget who it was, is like, yeah, go plant those in the yard. I'm like, okay. So I went and planted these trees in the yard, and then they told me my work wasn't done. Uh, I had to now build things around them to protect the tree. I had to provide the mulch. I had to weed it. Uh, and I feel like I spent the next five years of my life moving hoses from tree to tree to make sure that it got the nutrients that it had. And, you know, as a fourth grader, you watch that tree and you look out there and you're like, it's not going to make it. You know, you, you, you see it. It's a stick in the ground. By the end of the year, it might have had like six or seven leaves. It's like sadder looking than the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, right? But... Somehow, the growth that's up on top was not the most important growth that was taking place. Because the growth that was taking place was what was in there inside the paper towels was now expanding rapidly through the ground to get the roots established for those trees. When we moved from that house some eight years later, those little sticks had become respectable trees. Then I'd watch them go through seasons of, you know, the first time it goes cold, you go back out there the next time, all the leaves are on the ground. It's not going to make it. Um, but somehow it did. It continued to grow. 
It continued to withstand harsh winters, dry summers, those different things. We went back the other day. I, I drove by to show my daughter where, where I lived, and my wife let me know I was creepily doing it as the people were walking back to the house in this cul-de-sac, and she's like, keep moving. They clearly see we're staring at their house. And, uh, it's like, looking at those trees, they're massive. They're bigger than the house now. These tiny little sticks. And what allowed them to do that was that they were rooted in that soil. They got the nurturing and the needs that they had. And while you can't see that growth over a short period of time, over the 30 years that's taken place then, they're fruit-bearing trees. Doesn't mean that they don't have the scars of losing branches. It doesn't mean that they haven't seen things in life, that they haven't been around for hard seasons. But these trees flourished because they had what they needed to grow. That's the image that's given to us as those who seek to delight and abide in the Lord. It doesn't promise us that there won't be difficulties. It doesn't say that life is not going to be hard. It instead says that you have what you need to move through this season and to continue to produce the fruit that God has desired for you to produce. And that sets us up for the third and final scene. Because in this scene, we have a promise accompanied by a final command to be awaiting. You see, verses 5 and 6 highlight the harsh reality of life for us and for people of all times. Judgment is awaiting for the decisions that we make. But that promise of judgment is accompanied by a promise of the faithfulness of God that allows the true worshiper of God to endure whatever hardship they're experiencing, knowing that God is working through that situation for the fullness of his plan. And as they do that, as they remain faithful to abide in the Lord and to delight in his word, they're truly being prepared for whatever comes their way. They're prepared for the messiness of life. The book of Psalms walks through the messiness of life. Look down at Psalm 3. The next one that's after this this nice little opening that truly kicks off the meat of book one of the Psalms. Read that superscript, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's messy. You've got a kid usurping his father's throne, seeking his life, seeking his position. His dad, who was at that point in time, you know, the peak of celebrities, the biggest of big, had everything that was needed, is now being banished from his kingdom. But that's not it. Look down at Psalm 4 to see how the book continues to display the struggles of life. Psalm 4, 2. How long shall my honor be turned to shame? Psalm 6, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Psalm 7, 1, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. We could walk through the rest of the Psalms, but I hope you can trust me that the Psalms display the effects of the sinful world upon the worshiper of the Lord. 
and it prepares us for how we're to respond and how we're to live in light of the messiness around us because we can stand firm in the promises and the faithfulness in the character and in the attributes of our God. Because despite the wickedness of the world, God will uphold his people and he will keep them from the suffering that truly matters, which is the eternal punishment due to those who have chosen to align themselves with the way of the wicked. Now, as we look back at how we began our message this morning, I want us to look back on the thought of perspective because we've kind of walked through most of this from the Hebrew understanding of what's taking place. And I do that intentionally because at this point, it's, it's useful for us to understand that we're looking at the same thing they were looking at. We're looking at the same problem. We're looking at the same picture. We're looking at the same promise that they had. But what we need to understand is that when the book of Psalms was compiled in the 5th century BC, it was very close to the period of silence, the period at which God did not continue to give information to his people. And then when we fast forward to how they take this book and how they use it and what it looked like in their time, it did not prepare them for Jesus. We know that because we look at the nation of Israel, we see how they had ingrained this book into their festivals, how they had made it a liturgical part of their life, but it did not prepare them for Jesus because the leaders had put themselves on the way of wickedness. They were using things and doing things against the people. They were looking at different aspects of the promises of God. They were looking more for vengeance upon the places that had wronged the Lord than they were looking for upon an understanding of the promise of what God was waiting to do for them. And I mention that today because I think that we can be in a spot where we have the possibility to be just like those people as we seek to study these scriptures. If it's possible for the nation of Israel to read, to interact with, to recite these words, and for it to not take its desired effect, the same danger is present for us. We have to understand that the book of Psalms is a book of wisdom calling us to discern where we are at calling us to take action and to consider if we are on the path that is present before us that we desire and would say that we would want to be on in the path of the righteous. Because undoubtedly the nation of Israel had rebranded and made their thoughts such that they would say they were on the way of righteousness. You wouldn't have asked any of those priests who would say, no, we're definitely leading the people away from the Lord. We're not preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. But that's the sad reality of what we see. So rationalizing themselves to say, well, we're probably still on the pathway of righteousness is not the answer. But instead, it's evaluating. Because as we look at the promise of the faithfulness of God to bring us to the place that he desires us to be, we need to see, are we on the pathway of righteousness? Are we trusting in the promise that God has given us? That his faithfulness will continue to all days and his work in his word will never cease. 
you possibly noticed in this little application, I've really skipped over that middle picture. I did so intentionally because as we think about the poetic nature of this book, the center of the book, the center of this chapter is crucial to understanding the structure that's developed. Because the answer to having a true standing with God comes in the delighting and abiding relationship with him. And so the first question you ask of yourself must be, do you truly delight in the Lord? Do you have a growing and deepening love for God, for his word, and for his people, the church? Do you have a growing and deepening desire to be used by him wherever he leads you? It's a big difference to think of, are we filling our minds with these thoughts that are focused upon what we desire or what God desires for us? Because ultimately, only we can answer that question. We, like the nation of Israel, can put on a good show for the people around us that makes them think that we're religious when in fact we're the whitewashed tombs that Jesus called those people out on. It doesn't mean our lives aren't messy. It doesn't mean that there's not hardships. It doesn't mean that there aren't seasons where we would want things differently. But the true worshiper of God who seeks to be in his presence understands that God draws him step by step through the path on the journey that he has put him on knowing that he is working his story out in our lives the same way as he worked his story out through the scriptures, preparing his people each step for the next thing. So it's my prayer that as we walk through the Psalms this summer, we do so with that perspective, the perspective of understanding that we're here to interact the story of God and the person of God as we see him on the pages of scripture, that as we daily seek to meditate upon him day and night with all that we are, that we fill our thoughts, our minds, our lives with the teachings and the instruction and the Torah of God, knowing that he desires to grow us and build us for use in his kingdom. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the way in which you teach us And you do not leave us alone to discover these things by ourselves. But instead, you give us the patterns of Scripture. You give us the people of Scripture. You give us the opportunities to interact with you as we see your story playing out on the pages of our gospel. And God, I thank you that that you do give us all we need to understand how you have provided for our problem in Jesus Christ. Have you have given us him to do what only he could do to redeem us and bring us back to your presence and to the relationship that we were created to have with you. And it's only because of his sacrifice, it's only because of what he has done for us that we can even call upon your name. And so we thank you for that, that you have done for us what we can never do. May you continue to mold us, to shape in us, to draw us back to the path of righteousness, to refocus us upon your promises, and to give us daily a desire to grow in your ways as we seek to abide in you, to prepare us for whatever you have in store for us, knowing that you do so 
with your kingdom, your glory, and your perspective at hand. God, use us and mold us and make us the people you desire for your kingdom and glory to expand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.